0: Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast of the Lancet Oncology. My name is Marcia, and today we will be discussing the Global Cancer Control Network series that reflects on how high-income countries, in this case the UK and Canada, can support cancer control in low and middle-income countries. These initiatives are important in the context of Sustainable Development Goal 3, which advocates for good health for all, and one of the targets is reducing mortality from non-communicable diseases. And also, Sustainable Development Goal 17 that advises on strengthening partnerships to achieve these goals. Today, we have Susanna Stanway from the UK Global Cancer Network, Richard Cohen from the UK Christie NHS Foundation, and Daniel Roden from the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre in Canada, who are some of the authors of the series papers. We will also be speaking with Miriam Mutabi from the Aga Khan University Hospital in Kenya who kindly wrote a comment about this series. we start with Dr. Cohen and Dr. Stanway. Welcome both. And my first question to you is, what were the main aims with this series? And can you give us an overview of what the UK contribution to cancer control in low and middle income countries can be?
1: The main aims really it provided a wonderful opportunity for two comparable high income countries to discuss Um, how they are addressing the challenge of the increasing cancer burden upon patients and their carers in low-middle-income countries. And I think it did provide us with the opportunity to share our perspectives on our our goals, our challenges, and and our opportunities. And I, I think it was a way of us starting to look beyond our own shores and what we can learn from others in terms of how we take things forward. From the UK perspective, we'd first of all wish to acknowledge all the um, important work which has been carried out by our colleagues and institutions across the UK over many years, um, addressing the increasing burden of cancer in low middle income countries. Uh, This UK contribution has involved a large spectrum of activity across patient care from early detection, prevention, um, diagnosis and the delivery of care. Uh, We all recognise that high quality clinical care goes hand in hand with high quality uh, research and this is another area where the UK has made an important contribution. These research programmes have predominantly involved collaboration um, in-country, dealing with a variety of um, elements of cancer um, diagnosis, care and, of course, the epidemiology. We, shouldn't, we should also remember an important contribution from... Um, trials, clinical trials which have been carried out and driven within the UK, which can have a significant bearing on care with within these less resourced countries. Um, one good example might be in breast cancer, uh, the START trial, which demonstrated the equivalence Uh, of of, uh, lower fractions of radiotherapy in breast cancer compared with the longer fractionations. So these are examples where the UK has been playing an important role, but now we wish to look forward.
2: I think that the the UK to date has given a huge contribution um, to um, cancer care in in lower middle income countries. I think it's worth acknowledging up front that we all realise that in-country solutions are likely going to be the most important and are clearly what has to take um, take precedent. But I think that collaborations from from other countries are also incredibly important and, and, and can be helpful. I think that these collaborations are often multifaceted they're multidisciplinary they're clearly across the cancer care continuum what we're not talking about is just collaborations about cancer treatment it, it really is across the continuum um and i think it's also worth highlighting as we've discussed in the paper that these solutions look different in different countries and even within different countries um they they look different as well and have to be sensitive to the to the local um situation um, but I think that the overarching goal is to create a sort of global cancer outcome equity. So I, th- I think that historically there's been sort of academic collaborations which are focused on on the creation of knowledge and hopefully that that that's um, translated into um, more affordable cancer care solutions. I think that we have, we have seen and we continue to see teaching and training collaborations, which are fantastic. Um, there are collaborations around clinical practice and, and clinicians around the world contributing to MDTs, for example, in, in low and middle income settings and being, being part of those teams. And I think that we've we've also seen sort of higher level contributions at a sort of governmental level um, and contributing to. Um, Um, for example, you know, United Nations groups, Um, and we're in a situation at the moment where we're chairing um, the the G7, um, and we we are part of the Commonwealth, and I think that all of these um, sort of higher level organisations, we've got an opportunity to to contribute to this area. The the two pillars that we've proposed in the the paper are around um, London Global Cancer Week, and around the UK Global Cancer Network. So the London Global Global Cancer Week really originated from a a day meeting at the Royal Society of Medicine that we started in 2016. This was really off the back of of, of realising that there were lots of people with an interest in in global cancer care in the UK, um, and that many of them were perhaps doing similar things in different countries and could learn from sharing experience and and from getting together. So it it started out really as a convening meeting and to use it as a showcase to highlight what people were doing so that we could share, learn from each other. And that first meeting was a, it was a really, really exciting meeting. And there was a great amount of energy, enthusiasm, um, sort of commitment in the room that we wanted to capture and take forward and build upon. Um, And so in 2019, this grew into a week's worth of meetings. And this year, it it will be 30 meetings. And these are from small charitable organisations ranging up to United Nations groups, such as the IAEA, who who, who have a meeting. Um, So so a huge spectrum. Um, But it's been really um, fascinating. And, and interesting to, to see that grow, um, and the UK Global Cancer Network. We really, from the beginning of this RSM meeting, we we wanted to have some kind of formal structure whereby we could t- to harness this interest a- a- again and keep the work and our relationships building throughout the year not just at that one day meeting Um, and so we have active members supportive members sponsors associate members international members um, and this network is growing which is really exciting to be part of. Um, The first piece of work we've done is is a piece of mapping work which is just looking at what kind of collaborations are going on across the UK and we've got some exciting projects planned for the future but really we just want to Bring people together, um, you know, organizations, clinicians, researchers, um, facilitate collaborations a, a, and also um, it, it raise awareness within the UK um, of this area.
0: And have there been attempts previously to bring together all global
2: oncology projects across the UK and Canada? I, I think that the field of global oncology is a it's a relatively small sort of up-and-coming field. And I think that at an international level, um, many professionals that are interested in this um, know each other. But there's clearly a lot of work going on um, and and people sort of working independently and not knowing what the rest of the global community is doing. So I think that one of the aims of these um, of the series, of the meetings, of the network that that we've planned is to try and bring people together who are doing this kind of work globally um, across high, middle and low income countries. Um, So historically, there have been global oncology meetings held in the UK and in Canada. I'm sure the Canadians will talk about their meetings and we'll move on in a minute to talk about our meetings. Um, But I think that this series represents a great opportunity to bring this field and people that are interested in this um, internationally together.
0: And in bringing all stakeholders together under a central banner, have you seen any immediate synergies or possibilities for cooperation between, between projects or programs?
1: Uh, well, the, the simple answer is we very much have, in that just to start with, we've we have had we've known each other um over the last few years, but what this has done has brought us together to have, first of all, informal meetings to discuss our respective um approaches to how we're going to move forward with this. And I think by combining the the two, we are seeing the opportunity for sharing ideas, for sharing uh, resources, and and actually speaking with um, a much stronger voice, because in addition to many of the aspects that... (laughs) The UK and Canada are looking to deliver, one very important one is advocacy and being able to speak to um, our respective governments, to be able to speak to funding organisations, to be able to speak to the commercial sector. And as a combined uh, group, I think our voice will be much stronger in, in taking forward these things. And as, as Susie just mentioned, I think it's to Bring a more strategic approach to how we how we are facing these problems because historically we have been doing it in our individual uh, units either within our country or um, actually within our own institutes and to actually start bringing people together to start looking how we might approach things in a more strategic fashion I think will carry will bring with it far more effectiveness.
0: Thank you very much to both of our speakers. We will now speak with Dr. Rodin. What were the main findings of this series paper? And can you give us an overview of how Canada can contribute to cancer
3: control in low and middle income countries? Yeah, so this series paper is focused both on understanding the landscape of global cancer control in Canada through the work of Canadian investigators, institutions, funding organizations, and government agencies, and also on reflecting about how better interactivity, communication, representation, and new approaches can improve the quality of work that's being done across the country and can create more of a synergistic national presence. One of the major catalysts for this was a workshop that we held in November 2020 that really for the first time brought together Canadians across the country working in global cancer control to start to think about these issues. And although cancer has not actually been an explicit global health priority at a federal level, It was very evident at the workshop and in our own landscape analysis that Canada has many unique characteristics, including the infrastructure of several pan-Canadian organizations that afforded great potential for leadership um, and participation in global cancer control. Uh, For example, universal health coverage, UHC, has been a, a source of national pride, and Canada has a lot of experience with how to evaluate which drugs and interventions provide good value for money. And Canada has also been a leader in innovative strategies to address psychosocial needs of cancer patients and their families, and Canadians have played active roles uh, within many UN organizations related to cancer. And so based on these discussions, uh, this series paper wrestled with both the benefits and challenges of advancing global cancer control through a Canadian global cancer control network. And so to start developing a, uh, this kind of network requires, or we thought it required collaboration on some of the key issues and a clear vision of what really constituted equity and justice and cancer control, which we felt needed to occur under the leadership and guidance of organizations and investigators in low and middle income countries, and also alongside reflexive work about how our own uh, so-called local or domestic cancer disparities uh, can and should be addressed alongside these efforts. And so we ended this series with a potential roadmap for this new network focused on uh, really five key domains. Um, the first on promoting allyships, the second on strengthening human resource development for health the third on supporting a global cancer research agenda, Uh, the fourth on advancing more cohesive advocacy, and the fifth on identifying both quick wins and long-term goals for this network. And on human resource development, um, Canada has a rich history of engagement in health professions education. and, And we can build on this tradition by actively engaging in the development and evaluation of educational policies and materials that can address systemic inequalities. And in that regard, we see advancing specific and mandatory global cancer competencies within general medical curricula and defining or helping to define academic career paths within global cancer for promotions and decanal committees as really essential next steps. And we talked about um, how a Canadian network can also develop a strategic research agenda within global cancer control and advance specific priority areas in which um, Canada is already engaged, including women's health, um, with University of British Columbia leading a major federal funding initiative on cervical cancer, um, with palliative care, with a number of um, international collaborations in this area, um, tobacco control, childhood cancer, and, and others. And The network can also develop national standards for research involving partnerships between Canadians and those in uh, LMICs and addressing the ethical and practical concerns about authorship in global cancer research and and how to leverage existing research infrastructure to expand partnerships that promote uh, bidirectional learning. And I guess on this last point around cohesive advocacy as well, the Canadian Global Cancer Network can advocate for strong, nimble, responsive cancer systems that promote both equity and quality and for support for international health organizations such as the WHO, UICC, or the IAEA. And these are all big topics of conversations within our broader global health agenda today.
0: And will working together in a more collaborative way circumvent funding challenges given that philanthropic
3: aid and grants are declining in the post-pandemic climate? So this is definitely an interesting time to be applying for funding for any health issue unrelated to COVID but I think there's some important opportunities and um, certainly being able to connect individual global cancer initiatives through a global cancer network within Canada provides an opportunity to develop a systematic approach to stakeholder engagement and really to define the field as a programmatic area in need of unique funding support. Over a 16 year period from 2000 to 2016, the Canadian Institute for Health Research, our major national funding body for health research, CIHR, spent only 1% of its global health uh, research grants on cancer. And so, you know, I think coordinated advocacy at the national level really has an important role to play. Until now, global cancer has often fallen under other issues such as non-communicable diseases or tobacco control which have either been too broad or too narrow to meet the specific needs of cancer control in terms of a comprehensive strategy and advocacy. Working together and and developing a more collaborative global health network focused specifically on cancer can really help to ensure clear and coherent messaging about the importance of investing in global cancer control and can help to establish coalitions and pool resources among civil society, government agencies, and both community and academic hospital networks that are working on these issues and in related fields. And I actually think that COVID-19 has provided an important policy window to insert cancer into Canada's reopened global health agenda. There's right now broad public support and understanding for the concept that global and local health are inextricably linked. And I think we're all re-examining our public and global health priorities at the moment. And COVID has reinforced this idea that weak health systems themselves can contribute to global economic fallout. And that these factors can also play a role in containing the pandemic of cancer that's impacting the global community. And then finally, I think issues around health equity have also been propelled to the forefront and clearly identifying the issue of global cancer as one of the most glaring health equity issues that exist today at a global scale is really critical to securing ongoing support.
0: Thank you. And um, what are the long-term ambitions for the UK and Canadian global cancer control networks? And do you see opportunities
3: for the UK and Canada to work more closely on these endeavors? Our network is in its early stages, but in the long term, we see the Canadian Global Cancer Control Network as an opportunity to support cancer control becoming its own priority in Canada, uh, to promote academic career pathways and mentorship within the field of global oncology. And to strengthen opportunities for Canadians to contribute both individually and collectively to global projects on cancer control. And in that regard, I think there are many opportunities for the UK and Canadian networks to work together and in particular to be more thoughtful about opportunities to collaborate with each other and facilitate collaborations between many of our partners around the world. And I think one of the most important areas where the networks can work together is on drawing attention to the need for decolonized approaches to our relationships with institutions in other countries, and really to promote partnerships that accept the leadership of those with the lived experience of disparities. We at, at, at the Canadian Global Oncology Workshop, um, we're lucky to have Dr. Verna Vanderpoy, who's a radiation oncologist from Ghana, as one of our speakers and she made the powerful comment that you have to understand me before you can help me. And I think that comment became a focal point of the workshop discussions on how a network could support effective partnerships by recognizing local knowledge systems and understanding that some of those principles are relative to all regions and also recognizing what's unique to specific regions. And that kind of reorientation applies not only to the interactions of Canadian organizations or UK organizations with partner groups in low and middle income countries, but I think can also encourage reflexive work to address systems in our own organizations that may um, unintentionally reinforce systems of inequality. And I've spoken earlier about our uh, broader proposed roadmaps and and some of the long-term goals of this network. Um, and you know overall, in the long term, this kind of network can generate a single voice to amplify Canadian impact within inter- international organizations and to address their as well as other countries um, under investment in cancer control. And and the network can collaborate with other accreditation bodies around education and developing metrics for promotions within university systems and, and work with CIHR, our national funding agency, or the equivalent in the UK, to develop dedicated global oncology grants and maintain a database of funded activities in this area. Uh, And certainly facilitating regular contact and communication between investigators is essential and we are already planning for our next Canadian Global Oncology workshop, which is similar to the London Global Cancer Week, um, and really allows people to better know each other, motivates collaboration and, and scales up engagement. And I think that kind of interactivity and visibility will also encourage emerging leaders to consider the global dimensions in their work and, and to seek out opportunities for mentorship to enter the field. And, and these are all areas where Canadian and UK collaboration, as well as collaboration with other international networks, um, can be very vital.
0: We will close our podcast today with Dr. Mutibi. Thank you for agreeing to speak to us today. Are there any common priorities in low- and middle-income countries for cancer health system strengthening?
4: Great question. I believe there are a couple of common priorities in LMICs, especially around the development and implementation of national cancer control programs. And uh, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, in about 2013, we saw that only 46% of uh, countries had a national cancer control program. And by 2017, just three years later, this was up 74%, which is encouraging. But over and above just having a national cancer control program, um, the priority is that how do these align to the three Cs? And by this, we mean how consistent is um, the National Cancer Control Program? How aligned is it uh, with global norms? How comprehensive um, is the program, meaning that it's able to cover the entire continuum of care, whether it's all the way from prevention and diagnostics, all the way through to survivorship and palliative care? And again, how um, coherent is the National Cancer Control Program, meaning that they are linkages to the national health plans that are unique to that particular country. Now, um, again, one of the key um, priorities is, again, around, you know, funding for these programs. How do we get the financial resources and reserves? Uh, in many low- and middle-income countries, there is the invariable tension between infectious diseases and non-communicable diseases. And cancer care isn't cheap anywhere, but looking at how do we uh, create the funding and resources to provide um, quality service delivery to our populations um, at a cost that won't necessarily break the bank and, you know, trying to strive for um, the holy grail of universal health coverage. How do we achieve that for our populations? How do we ensure that um, we are actually having proper monitoring and evaluation of these programs to see whether we're making an impact um, to our people?
0: How can in-country experts influence international programs to ensure they are truly tailored to address local issues?
4: I believe the first step towards this is an honest and genuine appreciation for the impact of bi-directional learning. And I think um, it involves international programs um, understanding that they're not necessarily uh, coming to talk down to in-country experts, but perhaps taking a step back and saying, doing a situational analysis and saying um, what are the concerns on the ground, where are the gaps, uh, which the in-country experts are perhaps best uh, placed to answer, what are the existing initiatives um, that have been tried, what, what what's worked, what hasn't worked, and how can we work uh, together collaboratively to ensure that any strategies that we are implementing percolate down to our populations.
0: How are internationally funded projects perceived in the countries they are trying to help?
4: I think there are mixed perceptions, but I think it ultimately uh, comes down to um, how the internationally funded project presents itself, and perhaps looking at what is their impact or footprint on the ground. And I think this is in the background. I would say, of um, certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, we would have you know um, several institutions, perhaps from the same country, having you know p- uh, projects in tandem and not necessarily talking to each other. And perhaps in competition with each other, which kind of gave the sense that perhaps the ultimate objective was not necessarily to impact, um, you know, the communities that they were serving and perhaps to uh, per- uh, achieve their own um, personal objectives. And um, sometimes, again, just having a lack of impact on the ground, for instance, I would say in the HIV era, we would have certain labs um um, certain laboratories established um, that would cater to um, the do the lab tests for patients who are registered, for instance, on a trial, uh, but they wouldn't necessarily do anything outside of that mandate or wouldn't necessarily impact um Um, the rest of the hospital. And so these kind of structures invariably do not um, resonate well with the local community. I think there's been a growing consciousness and um, realization around the need to actually engage the communities that um, one is participating participating in, um, trying to have them as part of the problem solving, and um, just really listening, I think, helps to make a difference in the perceptions of um, communities that projects are trying to serve.
0: Many international projects are rooted in fixed-term initiatives and funding. What measures are needed to ensure those projects delivering real value continue when an international partner steps back?
4: great question. I believe there are a couple of key elements that are required in order to ensure um, that a project has longevity. And I think one of the key components is around capacity building. And um, I think when we look at capacity building, we shouldn't look at it as just, you know, token training of one or two um, individuals in a particular skill set, but rather look at how do we build systems, how do we plug into um, existing sort of initiatives rather than sort of having a standalone project? How does this project add value or strengthen uh, existing frameworks? Um, The other component that I think is critical is considering models that um, support and reflect value-based care, where in the sense that we're looking at projects that provide high quality, but as well... Um, consider the cost effectiveness of any of these strategies. And so it goes without saying, again, getting all stakeholders on board, um, you know, involving the communities that we're working with, involving the policymakers does go a long way towards, you know, sort of having shared and collective responsibility for the project and ensures and will help to ensure that that particular project does go, does live beyond that current grant cycle.
0: Thank you very much. I would like to thank all our speakers today. This series is now online at lancetoncology.com and with our September 2021 issue.